Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Sometimes the oddest, most unexpected things fall right out of the clear blue sky. Folks that we think we know are actually living a life that they'd rather be keep hidden away. And no matter of fact, hidden away from the entire world. Every now and again, somebody uncovers something about somebody that's rather shocking and downright disturbing. In some of these cases, an uncovering involves a nefarious act on somebody else's part. And that various act may include murder. Then, of all things, the victims of the crime end up in front page news for weeks on end because some of their laundry got hung out to dry. This was especially true back in the heyday of yellow journalism. Come on in, make yourself at home, and let me tell you about one of these things that includes all of the above with a parade of odd behavior coming along with it. September 16, 1922, two bodies were found shot to death underneath a crabapple tree just off a dirt road used as a lover's lane by folks in Somerset, New Jersey. The two bodies were those of two people who had been missing for about 48 hours. Their bodies had been staged, laying side by side on their backs with their toes pointed toward the trunk of that crabapple tree. They were the body of a man and the body of a woman. Her head lay in his extended right arm while her hand lay just above his left knee. One of his engraved calling cards was propped against the sole of his shoe. He was identified as the Reverend Edward W. Hall, a 45-year-old pastor of the Church of St. John the Evangelist in New Brunswick. He was married to a lady named Frances Hall. The woman who was with him was identified as Eleanor Mills who was age 34. She was a faithful member of the St. John's Church and a member of their choir. She was married to James Mills, the church sexton. Now, that's a term you don't hear much anymore. It's a position that's very much like a caretaker or janitor would be today. He essentially did about anything and everything that the church needed done. Apparently, everybody in the area seemed to know that Miss Mills and the good Reverend Hall were meeting on the sly for some extracurricular activities. Maybe a little personal counseling or something along those lines. 
and that was everybody but their respective spouses. There were several signs that Ms. Mills had been the one that the killer apparently hated the most. The good reverend had been shot once while she was popped four times, but that wasn't all. A brown silk scarf was draped around her neck and hid the fact that her throat had been cut so deep that she was all but decapitated while Reverend Hall had his Panama hat covering his face with his glasses still perched on his nose and somebody had made sure that his eyes were closed while Eleanor's were left wide open with a look of horror stuck on her face. An autopsy later revealed that Mrs. Hall's tongue and vocal cords were completely missing as well. To do that, folks, they had to pull them down through the cut in her throat and cut them out that way. That's just awful. There was what was left of love letters torn into shreds and sprinkled all around her bodies like seasoning on a Christmas ham before baking. Anyway, you can bet that it didn't take long for parts of those to find their way into the newspapers. Ms. Mills wrote, You are a true priest, and the pastor responded that God wants his people to enjoy all things deeply. Just to give you an idea of what was going on there. The press went completely nuts over it. This stuff was plumb off the charts for 1922, folks. What with uh, all these God-fearing Christians enjoying all these things deeply and everything. And as uh, if that wasn't enough to whip folks into a frenzy, one of the leading characters to step into the mix was Eleanor's 16-year-old daughter, Charlotte. The teenage girls having wild behavior created an end-of-the-world panic back then, and there was a real live flapper who was bobbed short hair and short skirts right there in front of everybody. Now everybody was talking about the apple not far falling far from the tree. Never mind that the two people who were outright murdered right under everybody's nose and the madman or woman that did it was still out there running around possibly looking for a couple of more victims. Papers described Charlotte as having the physical and mental development and independence of a grown woman. She also had a firm opinion about exactly who murdered her mother and was not shy about telling everybody that listened. She said that the jealous woman killed my mom and Miss Hall was her. And she said it like she knew it for a fact and actually hated the pastor's wife. Johnson fortune. Anybody that's my age knows just how big the Johnson and Johnson fortune would be, especially back then. Edward Hall had been the handsome young pastor and the upper crust of New York manners that swept the rich girl right off her feet just ten years before this happened. Now the papers turned on Miss Hall, calling her stout, gray-haired, and old, while her husband's murdered girlfriend was the young and pretty wife of a church sexton. In other words, who could blame him for doing what he did? It was worse than any tabloid could have done, folks, and these were surprised to be a reputable newspaper, or supposed to be a reputable newspaper. In spite of it all, spouses of the victims didn't give an inch. They maintained their belief that the, their uh, murdered loved ones were innocent, or at least they said so, for what it was worth. 
Mr. Mills visited Mrs. Hall just after the murder, and she promised him that she would spend her strength and resources to find the murderer. Then Miss Hall, in her infinite wisdom, refused to hire a private detective to help find out who, what, when, and where all of this happened. Heck, it wasn't like she couldn't afford it or something, but she said to do that would show an unchristian disposition to a vindictive revenge. And that's a quotation from her. A long-winded way of saying, ain't gonna do it. Folks, she said that she believed the murders had been a terrible mistake of some kind, and as odd as it sounds, police couldn't shrug it off. And there are folks that believe that's exactly what happened to this day. Folks, the first thing everybody thought was that the murders happened when the two lovebirds were caught and confronted by Ms. Hall and a few of her male relatives. Things got out of hand and ended the hard way. Ms. Hall had been Charlotte's Sunday school teacher, but that didn't buy her any pity. Charlotte said that she'd never liked her and from the looks of things, the feeling was mutual. Ms. Hall didn't have a bit of use for flappers either. On the other hand though, Charlotte and her mother, as she put it, were chums who were for years shared the bedroom after Eleanor stopped sleeping with her husband, James, by who all accounts lacked a drop of ambition and was pretty much a slacker. All of that just added more fuel to the fire and kept everything in the headlines that much longer. Several months prior to the murders, Eleanor told her daughter that if she didn't survive an upcoming kidney operation, which, by the way, was being paid for by the Reverend Mrs. Hall, Charlotte would make sure that a bunch of incriminating letters would be sent to one of Eleanor's sisters so that they could be properly dealt with. By properly dealt with, in this case, I suppose, would mean turn them into ashes. And that's still all. No. Charlotte said that she knew that her mother left letters for Reverend Hall in a large book in his study, one located on the second shelf from the bottom of the bookcase. She also happened to know that her mother had become violently ill for days after drinking a cup of coffee with the good Mrs. Hall. If I didn't know Mrs. Hall was dear friend, Eleanor said, I would have been sure the coffee was poisoned. When Mrs. Hall, or when Charlotte, I'm sorry, being all worked up after the murders, went to see Mrs. Hall. She was met by one of Mrs. Hall's attorneys who suggested Charlotte might need to be sent to some kind of institution. Well, I guess that would be an institution for wayward flappers or something. The failure of the grand jury later in that year to indict anybody for the murders hadn't changed Charlotte's mind a bit. And of course, she still didn't hold anything back as the headlines kept flying. What she heard inside the grand jury room made her believe that the district attorney was more interested in reports about her than he was finding the murderer of her mother. Charlotte let everybody know she, who, or whoever would listen that instead of being questioned about her mother's movements and frame of mind, she was grilled about whether she smoked or drank. Of course, she didn't either. She also faced insinuations that she'd rather go to a roadhouse at night than to stay home and keep house for her poor old dad and her brother. This is about to get even weirder, folks. Stick around. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Benton. By the time everybody was tired of hearing her and started to criticize her for not wearing black as the custom of the day, 
to mourn the passing of family members was, somebody got the bright idea to send her a black veil with a note that said, wear this veil to hide your face. It's not fit to be seen. You're a public disgrace. Once again, the tide had turned, and finally the case turned cold. And it would be four years before the case heated up. And that's when the husband of the Hall's former maid, Louise Geist, claimed in a divorce petition that she'd been paid $5,000 for withholding crucial evidence from the investigators. Back in 1922, Louise testified about comings and goings of the entire family in the Hall household on the evening that Reverend Hall bit the bullet, so to speak. Louise now said that and upset Willie Stevens, who was Miss Hall's brother who lived with the family and was known to be about half a bubble off plum, told her the morning following the murders that something terrible happened last night. On top of that, she said Reverend Hall, who she referred to as my old buddy, told her that he and Miss Mills planned to run off together as soon as she healed up from her surgery. Louise said that she passed that little bit of information on to Mrs. Hall on the night of the murder, and Mrs. Hall, along with Willie, then piled up into the limo, and the chauffeur drove him over to where the love struck two met on the sly. That did it. The whole story went viral. Well, as viral as viral was in 1926, the tide had turned again, and now the headlines were practically demanding Miss Hall and her brother Willie Stevens' heads be lopped off and delivered on platters immediately. As far as anybody was concerned, they were guilty as the day was long. This led to the widow Hall, Willie Stevens, who owned a 32 caliber pistol that had been filed down to keep him from hurting anybody or himself. Another brother named Henry Stevens, who just happened to be a expert expo exposition markman, and a cousin named Henry Carpenter, who was a Wall Street broker, being arrested, dragged downtown and charged with the murders of Reverend Edward Hall and his girlfriend Eleanor Mills. And they didn't waste any time to get to trial, folks. It started on November 3rd, 1926. The state's star witness was known as the Pig Woman because she raised hogs on her farm, which was the very land where the bodies had been found. The prosecution told the jury that the Pig Woman was dying and wished to get the real story off her conscience before she would depart this, quote, veil of tears, end quote. She was wheeled in straight from the hospital and into the courtroom on a gurney. Of course, the prosecutor and the trained nurses and all were sitting by the pig woman's side, taking her pulse every so often just to make sure she wasn't fading away. Her name was actually Jane Gibson Luton Easton and said, well, as everybody there could tell, she was obviously bathing in the movement for a moment. You could See, I have a problem with corn robbers at night and to Russie, off into Russie's lane. And I was woken in the night by the rattle of a wagon, which I suspected was driven by somebody trying to steal my corn. And the pig woman sang. I saddled up my mule, Jenny, and followed the wagon down the lane, careful not to be noticed by anyone in the wagon. But I was peeking and peeking and peeking. Then she saw an automobile out of the lane and in it were Mrs. Hall and Willie Stevens. That's when the pig woman said that she tethered Jenny the mule to a cedar tree and slid up on foot where she overheard some kind of an argument and heard a voice call out and explain these letters. Then she said she saw by the light of a flashlight 
that both Willie and Henry Stevens had guns. Then she heard a couple of gunshots. Of course, the pig woman said she was terrified by the shooting and deathly afraid of winding up dead herself, but still she found that she'd lost a moccasin at the crime scene, so she went back to find it, and there she saw a big white-haired woman crying. It was about the time that the big woman's song went sour with the jury, and she knew it. The whole thing just didn't ring true with them, and that's when the pig woman reached down deep to gather enough strength for her encore, like Beverly Sills at Madison Square Garden. And she lifted her withered body to stare down the defendants and yell that I've told the truth, so help me God, and you know I have. She was then wheeled out and taken back to the hospital where she got well enough to go back home and live out her life, which lasted four more years. Charlotte, who didn't miss a single second of the trial and happened to notice one of the defense attorneys speaking to a jury member as several other folks who had then went to the newspapers with an accusation of jury tampering, but their concerns were completely ignored by the powers that be and didn't, but it made for more good headlines. On December 3rd, the defendants were all acquitted in what Charlotte called a terrible miscarriage of justice. Charlotte's notoriety, if anybody's from the trial, did maintain strong, and the Daily Mirror hired Charlotte to write a column called Dog Exchange, in which she found new homes for stray dogs, but when the Hall Mills murder publicity finally died down. Charlotte was no longer useful to the paper, which had only hired her in order to keep her close in case they needed her for a story about the murders. And then she was fired. Charlotte Mills died of cancer in 19, at 46 years old in 1952, after a life of self-imposed exile from, from all humanity. Even so, notoriety stalked her from beyond the grave when an adult children of a woman in Philadelphia submitted her obituary to the local newspapers in 1986. They were shocked to discover that she wasn't in fact Charlotte Mills of the whole Mill murder fame, an identity that she had been using since at least the early 1930s when her children asked her why author William Kunstler in his 1960 book about the case it said Charlotte Mills died in 1952. The mother said just let it be and told him to let it rest. She, her real name was eventually found to be Marie Thompson, and maybe unsurprisingly, friends described her as a real piece of work. The real Charlotte Mills never recovered from the loss of her mother. As she wrote in 1929 a Cosmopolitan article, her beloved mother was taken away overnight, and life's all different, but I know I can never go back to what it was before. She used to be a tender-hearted girl, Anyone's troubles made her cry. Now I can, she said, I just want to laugh and laugh and laugh. Maybe because laughter is so close to tears. Her mother's murder, and well as the Reverend Hall's, remains unsolved to this day. The Hall Mills murders will likely never be solved. I hope you enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast. And don't forget to follow us on whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Join us on Facebook group, Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and uh, we can talk about whatever you want to talk about. 
I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian murder mystery or legend, and I will see you then.